I'm Beth Bruno, and you're listening to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast. This is a podcast for women who wonder how strength and weakness coexist, or how to bless both bravery and tenderness. For those longing to bring the fullness of their glory to the world without a chip on their shoulder. For those who have embraced a global sisterhood and left small storied lives behind, this is for you. The fierce and lovely women seeking the both and of a big storied life. Join me as I chat with fierce and lovely women around the world. I talk with Kathy Kong, a speaker, journalist, and activist. Kathy has worked in campus ministry for more than 20 years with expertise in gender, ethnicity, justice, and leadership development. She is a columnist for Sojourners Magazine, a writer for Faith and Leadership, and a co-author of More Than Serving Tea, Asian American Women on Expectations, Relationships, Leadership, and Faith. Her new book released this summer, and it's entitled Raise Your Voice, Why We Stay Silent and How to Speak Up. In this episode, Kathy and I talk about how do we move beyond the single space that so many of us tend to operate in and really embrace the fullness of who we are as sisters. How do we come alongside each other, um, white sisters and sisters of color, and how do we find the truth and hope of the gospel in the midst of so much of brokenness and injustice in the world? We talk about how as people of faith, we do not get to choose. As Jesus followers, we don't get to choose. Really, it's a both and of being fierce and lovely. Uh, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Kathy as much as I did. Here we go. Hi, Kathy. Welcome to the Fierce and Lovely podcast. Thanks so much, Beth. I am um, looking forward to talking with you and introducing you to my listeners. I thought maybe I would let you tell us a little bit more about yourself that's kind of not on the back flap of your book. Uh, Tell us a little bit about who you are and kind of what fills your days. Well, uh, fills my days... These days, it's watching my neighbors walk their dogs across the sidewalk um, because I moved my office to what is the living room in our home so that I can enjoy the beautiful sunlight through our amazing bay window. Um, But in the moving of my office, I didn't think ahead realizing that I spend most of my days working from home. So I'm in my pajamas or (laughs) loungewear (laughs) watching my neighbors walk their dogs. Um, And so I spend most of my days writing or thinking about what I'm writing or uh, hoping that a few sentences will come out of my staring at the computer. And then I also uh, work part-time for a national campus ministry organization as well. Okay. And what's your role there? (laughs) It, uh, It has a very big title. It's called Director of Campus Access. Uh, But what 
that really means on a day-to-day basis is trying to build relationship between folks who are on the ground in the university in student affairs and helping them understand the importance and value of a healthy religious environment um, for students to explore religion and faith. And then (sighs) the flip side of that is helping our staff understand the value of building relationships with the professionals in student affairs so that we have a strong open line of communication with, with the university. Which is probably quite important after some campuses actually shut out access to faith-based organizations. Yes. Is that correct? Yes, it is absolutely correct. Wow. What an important role. And so you get to do that from home? You get to do that remotely? Yes, I do. I do. It's the magic of the internet, which is wonderful. And then occasionally travel when it's necessary. Mm -hmm. And then you also are the mother to three, is that right? Three kids? So um, we only have one left at home, our 17-year-old son, who is a junior in high school. And um, and junior year is what I call the worst year in high school. Um, if you are college bound or thinking about college, this is a year of all the standardized tests, and people start asking you what you want to do for the rest of your life. And so we've been telling our son, you know the drill. We do not think you should know what you want to do for the rest of your life at 17. (laughs) So don't worry. Um, And then we have two older children. We have a 19-year-old son who is a sophomore in college, and he is not sure what he wants to do for the rest of his life. So we are telling him as well, it is okay take um, a good variety of classes. And I think he's enjoying uh, kinesiology and uh, philosophy. So we found that really interesting. We're like, yes. Two really different things. Right. And neither um, area did he have much exposure to when he was in high school. So I think this is, again, the perfect argument for being able to do some exploration when you have the privilege of attending college or university. So, and then our oldest is 22 and she is a dancer out in New York, um, living her best life. Mm. (laughs) That's what I like to say. (laughs) Oh, and is she finding work? I mean, is she kind of finding meaningful opportunities to to use her dance? She is. She is. So uh, she, much like many others, uh, many other artists are having to kind of cobble together a variety of things to pay the bills. And so she's got three part-time jobs that uh, finance her life out there and then is able to still have room for auditions and performances. And so this past weekend, I was just able to see a performance of hers. And that was just, that was such a privilege to be able to see her in her element and doing her thing. And then she has another performance coming up at the end of October. So she is finding um, 
the challenges as well as the benefits of being able to have that kind of flexibility. It definitely is not the kind of life I would necessarily want for myself at my age, but you know, she's healthy and uninjured and undaunted by it all. And it was a, you write about this in your book, which we'll get to in just a second, but it was a journey for you as well, wasn't it? To allow her to, to step into that, to choose, to, to study dance. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, when we put her in dance when she was four, it was really because gosh darn it, what little girl does not look absolutely adorable in a leotard and ballet shoes and tights and a little tutu? Like, it's just cute. Um, and we tried it because soccer just wasn't her thing. She was not interested at all. <laughs> and, um, and so when we put her in that, we just we did not think that this was going to be something that she wanted to pursue throughout her life. And so when she approached us um, in high school, that this was something that she wanted to pursue, uh, my husband and I really had a moment, several moments with God about, uh, did we trust God? Did God know better than we did? Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and, and what it meant to also trust our daughter mm. in, in making these types of decisions that we had said all along to her and her brothers that um, we would listen to them and uh, kind of put their own knowledge of who they were and how they saw themselves in this world in that process. But yeah, it was, we were not expecting that. <laughs> we weren't <laughs> expecting that. I want to major in dance. I was like, what? You can do that? Right. And we can pay for that? <laughs> right. How does that work? There are, sc- what? You can, uh. you can go to college and not, okay. All right. So we, right. it was a huge learning curve. Sure, sure. Um, wow. Well, as a mother to a you know freshman in college, this is all new to us, and it was surprisingly difficult. I was never one of those moms that cried, you know, when their kids started school mm-hmm. or um, happily sent him off to you know camps and five week long camps, and I thought I will be fine. Not to mention the fact that he's here in our own town. And I thought, I've got this. But he moved into the dorm and I became a weepy mess for about a month. Of course. It it just took me by surprise. So any advice for me, Kathy? Um, It's, you know, it takes time. I found that I actually needed the full year. Um, Our daughter went away to school in New York. And so... I think I, well, I know I expected to break down into a puddle of whatever, um, but it still was hard. I thought maybe by the time we sent her back after winter break, that it would be all right. And it was, oh, it was horrible. (laughs) It was terrible dropping her off at the airport. And so I would say, and I tell this to all of my parent friends, just 
give yourself time. You're actually grieving. And, um, and it's bittersweet because we know that this is, this is what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to actually leave the nest for longer periods of time. And right. Uh, this is, this right. is a sign of health and, yes. and even good parenting that he was able to do this. Right. Right. And, and so, um, and so I think that I, I, well, I tell people, give yourself time because we can celebrate all of the wonderful things and that's appropriate, but I don't think we do a very good job of giving ourselves permission to grieve. And, um, and you're, and you are, you're grieving, you're grieving a loss of childhood. And I think it's important to give ourselves time to be honest with ourselves about, do we have regrets? Are there things we wish we had said or done? And, you know, how do we make peace with that as parents? Mm-hmm. Yes, that, that is partially what it is. It's grieving. It's also this accepting of, of a new stage for me and mm-hmm. entering into kind of that. It feels like, okay, now I'm officially in midlife. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> I can no longer pretend that I just graduated from college, which is how right. I often felt. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Kathy, let's transition and talk talk about your new book, um, Raise Your Voice, Why We Stay Silent and How to Speak Up. And um, and just let's start with kind of better understanding the context from which you wrote the book, because I know that, that is, that's so important. And that's kind of what it's about, is recognizing that our voices come out of the spaces we find ourselves in. And the way we've been shaped and the, the person that we are. Can you speak a little bit about that? Your, just your context. Sure. And then I want to dive into some so spe- specific things that really impacted me in your book. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I write very specifically from the lens of being a Korean American woman who grew up, grew up predominantly um, in white spaces uh, with the respite of the Korean immigrant church on Sundays and um, went to university and discovered a small Asian American Christian group of students and realizing that the way I interacted not only with the world, but also with scripture had a lot to do with my ethnicity, my culture, and my gender. And that also impacted the way I communicated or felt like I had permission to communicate. And so that's kind of from where this all bubbles up Hmm. and then eventually came out in the book. Mm -hmm. So really a journey throughout your, your half of your life of finding your voice in that context. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's a journey that we all go through, right? Whether whether or not you're an immigrant man, woman, um, we're all on this journey of figuring out who we are and uh, what are our gifts? um, What are we supposed to do when we grow up? And um, how do we make an impact in the world around us? And for those of us who are people of faith, how do we live that faith out authentically? And, um, and how do we wrestle with the ways we've been told to 
speak our minds, live out our faith, engage with the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Here's a quote that I wanted to read that really struck me. Um, It's just as, you know, talking about who are we um, in terms of being faith, faith followers and speaking out. You talk about reflecting God's image, the Imago Dei. You wrote, despite what social media gurus will tell you, your voice is not part of your personal branding or there to expand your platform. You are not a brand. You and I are created in God's image, the Imago Dei, which means that we can reflect and communicate God's healing and beauty into hopeless, broken, hurt, and empty spaces. Our voice is meant to be and bring good news. I loved that. And I think, and yet, sometimes that's really hard to hear. Absolutely. And I think even more difficult to hear now with um, social media. And I look at this kind of younger generation who's grown up with phones, smartphones, Instagram, Snapchat, and this idea of platform and how you present yourself in the world. And it is both exhilarating and daunting to think of how um, a younger generation will wrestle with finding their own voice and meaning in a world that can be very one-dimensional. But, you know, for us as communicators and authors, I mean, we both know there is, there is a need to show potential publishers that we have a platform, that we have an audience. Um, But I wrote that particular portion and that part because I believe and have known even before writing the book that my identity isn't in the number of followers I have or the number of books that I sell, but that my security has to come and my identity has to come from knowing who my creator is and how God sees each one of us. Um, Otherwise, I think it's just this horrible cycle of trying to find approval in the world around us. And that's just going to be exhausting and, um, and draining. Right, right. So how do we speak into the brokenness, the hurt, the empty spaces that we see as being you know, the, what we're saying, what we're speaking into is the good news, and yet it's not received as such. And I don't even mean by kind of the, the secular world. I, some, I mean, sometimes by our fellow believers, by our sisters and brothers, um, where what we're speaking, and I know you have faced this, Kathy, is not received as the same good news. <laughs> right, right. Um, well, I think And recently, I've been having this conversation with um, friends and colleagues, is that um, I I remind people who push back and say, you know, when you keep talking about what's wrong in this world, 
and your disappointment, they do ask, you know, how is that the good news? And I say, I think it speaks to my hopefulness that things could be better and that things should be better, not just for me and you, but for everyone. And that my disappointment in the brokenness still speaks to a hope that things can change. And I do think that speaking the truth, which is sometimes revealing the brokenness, can be the hardest first step. Um, and particularly, again, I think in this world where we're so connected and we can kind of post pretty pictures and happy snippets of life um, and feel like the stream of bad news can be unending, is to actually sit with the discomfort of the brokenness in the world, and particularly as people of faith and Jesus followers, do we believe that things can be better? Mm -hmm. And if we can't, then yes, this is not good news. But if we believe things can change, I think it is important and imperative to sit in the brokenness, to grieve, to lament, mm -hmm. and then to hope and take action to make things better. Mm -hmm. I I heard you speak in the spring, and lament, you know, is the word I would use to describe the tone and the words that you had. You were lamenting what wasn't. And mm -hmm. I, I did see in that a hope for what could be. Um, and it was regarding just women, sisters in the faith. And as a woman of color, you were lamenting, feeling the lack of um, just love and support by white sisters. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. Like, how, how do we do this as sisters? Um, and so as a leading woman of color... What are some of the things you would like for your white sisters to hear about embracing the broken hurt, broken hurt and empty spaces together? Yeah. Um, I think what's important is that uh, in wanting to be sisters, we cannot erase the very different experiences and ways in which we exist in this world. And that those differences do not diminish sisterhood, but actually can strengthen it if we take the time to recognize um, here in the U.S. and even globally, our white sisters walk with a level of freedom and um, and and I know that this word privilege if, is often misunderstood, um, and that's why I use am testing the word freedom. Is that there are things that my white sisters will never have to experience in a world that elevates their existence and elevates their existence even in our faith and in the language of our faith. So when we say things like you know. Our sins are washed away white as snow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? It, it, 
we have to understand that that can carry a different impact for those of us who walk life, um, not white. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, you know, needing and wanting my white sisters to understand um, your experiences have often been told as being universal. Hmm. And that yours is the story that is not only universal, but true and um, does not have to be translated. Mm-hmm. And then that in turn means for those of us women of color, our stories aren't universal and they don't apply, which means we are set off to the side and we are niche. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I would say, yes, our stories are not universal. My white sisters are never going to experience life in this same way. But there is so much that you need to learn from those of us who do not walk in that freedom, do not walk in that privilege, so that we can actually be sisters. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, that's a lot of the lament that you heard and felt um, when you heard me speak in the spring and that I still wrestle with. I think even in writing the book, even in the journey of proposing this book, wrestling with, will will it get published? Will my stories be read as something that is valuable to the broader Christian community, even though I am not a white woman? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It took a, a step of faith for you? It took a huge step of faith. It took 10 years of trying to, one, own and sit in the reality that I did not want to write this book from the perspective of an expert. I really, um, and I tried throughout the book to recognize we all make mistakes. I continue to make mistakes. Um, And that finding your voice, raising your voice is a process in which we are constantly stepping over our own feet and maybe sticking that foot in our mouths. <laughs> um, but also that it is for the whole, not just for us individually, to be able to find our identity and to raise our voice, that that sense of importance. And, and it took 10 years in part because so many of the voices that I read and heard and learned from were white men and women whose, again, whose stories and whose voices are often presented as being um, universal. Mm-hmm. And realizing, actually, I had to do a lot of translating in reading those stories. And modifying and and then sometimes in the end going actually this doesn't apply. <laughs> wow, yeah. Yeah. So how have you come to struggle through wrestle through kind of the what I'm getting at on this podcast of the the both and of being fierce and lovely because I could see how speaking your your truth and speaking out 
um, using your voice would lend itself to, to being quite fierce. Um, this idea of coming against injustice alongside of God. And yet you're also so committed to bringing forth beauty and life in that you're, you're bringing forth the gospel. You're speaking good news in that fierceness. How, how are you embracing the both and of that? Well, I think in addressing injustice, um, like you said, there there has to be a, a ferocity behind that um, and uh, an energy to keep raising those issues to the surface because, you know, we, we want to live our comfortable lives here in the U.S. We don't want to be disturbed too often by the news. But in that, I think what is beautiful and lovely is that the flip side to the brokenness and injustice is the hope and the possibility and the reality of justice, of good news for everyone, that it isn't for a select few, but that this is for everyone, that um, knowing God's love and flourishing in that is for everyone and not just for the privileged 1%. Um, and so I, I see it as it has to be a both and mm-hmm. that uh, people of faith, Jesus followers cannot be one or the other. And, um, and I think that that's part of the wrestling and figuring out what is it that we've been taught to believe. Um, it's not just about our sinful nature. It is also about the goodness of God. Mm-hmm. It can't be just one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. You write, um, you're, you're writing about online exchanges and kind of the, the conflict that can occur in some of those social media spaces. And you say, it's never about creating conflict for conflict's sake. It's always about the truth of the gospel and how it's being incorrectly communicated through stereotypes or through dangerous policies and practices. And I think that's that's kind of what you're getting at. Mm-hmm. It is. It is. And it's so hard because, you know, I grew up in the evangelical space and was often told, you know, separate my my faith from politics. But that's not really true. That doesn't really happen. It's just that faith looks a certain way and politics look a certain way. And um, and having to investigate and take a deeper look at how that maybe doesn't impact everyone fairly or justly and how complex it all is. And so, yeah, social media is a funny space, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, and if you only know me online, and if you only know me on one channel online, mm-hmm. right? It it can look like that that I'm just trying to provoke mm-hmm. all the time. But again, I think it's um, pushing people to think beyond uh, platform, mm-hmm. um, think beyond just that single space. Um, who are we in the fullness? How do we all give each other 
um, that space in our hearts and minds to say, you, Beth, are created in God's image. And I may disagree with you completely on X, Y, and Z, but um, in that, how can we interact um, honestly, fiercely, with love, in pushing each other to see things or to re-examine what we have believed is good for me may not actually be good for others. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if we were all so generous with one another to listen and to just reconsider um, the lens through which we're viewing the world and how we're forming our own opinions, where would we be, right? Right, right, right. So real quickly, before we wrap up, I, in line with being um, a little provocative at times, <laughs> you are becoming kind of famous for your t-shirts. Do you know yes, this? <laughs> I do, I do. <laughs> but listening to you, I am starting to wonder if those are playful and meant to... I, I'm sure they're meant to provoke, but are they also meant to kind of open up a line of conversation in a fun oh, way? Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, I have a, quite a collection of t-shirts, which is funny because I, um, I'm i not really like a t-shirt jeans kind of girl. I don't own very many jeans. I hate shopping for jeans. Um, but uh, it has become a way to also uh, communicate without saying a word. And so, yeah, I wear T-shirts that say things like, I'm tired of listening to old white men. Um, <laughs> and the other day I wore a T-shirt that said, um, Lord, grant me the confidence of a mediocre white man. Um, and And... And part of that is there is a playfulness to it, and then there is a provocation. And I think that there is also a desire to um, connect with feelings that I think a lot of us have, but aren't there aren't a lot of spaces in which we can say those things. <laughs> um, and yeah, so I tend to wear those shirts whether I'm speaking at a conference or particularly when I'm traveling at the airport. I like to kind of see what kind of reaction oh I get. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> Can you think of the the funniest reaction that you've received? Um I was wearing I'm trying to think. Oh, I was wearing a t-shirt that says, "Yes, he's a racist." Um, and, uh, I was walking down, you know, the narrow center aisle of, a an airplane slash sardine can. And I caught the eye of a gentleman who was sitting in the aisle and I couldn't tell right away by the look he was giving me, whether or not this was like a friendly look or a look of disdain. I couldn't tell right away. Mm -hmm. And so as I got closer, there was a bit of me like tensing up. Um, people usually don't say anything to me, but then he just kind of laughed and he said, wow, you're pretty brave for this time of morning. And I chuckled back and I said, well, (laughs) I guess. And he said, I like your shirt. 
let's make sure people vote. And I said, and other things. And, you know, all this is happening within, you know, a few seconds while people are trying to like find their seats and jam their luggage into the overhead compartment. But, um, but that's in part why I wear these shirts because uh, we don't really interact with people. I don't really want to have a conversation with a stranger at 6 a.m. catching a flight. But I also think that there are opportunities um, to be human. Mm-hmm. And that's one way mm-hmm. I try to do it. Yes. Well, it's I find it to be fun simply because I think in today's age with the online space, we can go forever without interacting with anyone who thinks differently. Right. And so even just to be confronted with with something provocative that is different than the way you think is I think it's just healthy because yes. we're living in in extreme silos these days. Yes. Um, yes. And that includes the church. And so I, I find your shirts to be just humorous. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Oh, Kathy, thanks so much for coming on the Fierce and Lovely podcast today. And we're going to have all of your information on how people can find you and find your book and potentially win a free copy of your book in the show notes. Um, So thanks so much for sharing with us today. Thanks so much, Beth. Um, wow, listeners, I don't know about you, but that for me was an incredible conversation. I am just loving Kathy and how she articulates um, so many of these hard truths that uh, so many of us women are wrestling with. And, you know, I wanted to leave you with another quote from her book that uh, for me is a great follow up on the whole t-shirt conversation. Uh, She wrote, Engaging in online exchanges, particularly the larger scale organized online actions I've been a part of, is never about creating conflict for conflict's sake. It's always about the truth of the gospel and how it's being incorrectly communicated through stereotypes or through dangerous policies and practices. This isn't about forcing the church to be politically correct or about an individual speaking their mind. It's about how the church and its leaders and members bear false witness in their public leadership. It's about inviting other sisters and brothers to be a church that more accurately reflects the beauty and diversity of the church. And I just wanted to leave that with you in case anybody felt like we were um, making some political commentary. I I just love how for for Kathy, it's not as much um, about the political commentary she's making as it is about the truth of the gospel and where we see truth. being infringed upon, where we see brokenness, can we also find hope and speak into that? And is fighting for justice um, about fighting for that hope of the gospel for all? And sometimes that means bearing a hard message for some. So I 
I want you to be able to read this book and you can potentially win a free copy. Just head over to my Instagram page when the show posts at Beth H. Bruno. Leave a comment, tag up to three friends, and Ivy Press is going to generously send a copy to a lucky winner of Kathy's new book, Raise Your Voice, Why We Stay Silent and How to Speak Up. Uh, Thanks so much for listening today. If you're enjoying the show, would you leave a review so that others can more easily find it? Um, I'm loving doing the show and loving the guests that I get to talk to. And if you have any suggestions for some incredible guests that should come on the show, please uh, let me know. Send them to me um, on my Instagram page and I'll check it out. Uh, This is Beth Bruno and you've been listening to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast. Podcast.